Sanders. Welcome to the Dr. Hedberg Show for cutting-edge practical health information. For the latest articles, videos, and podcasts, visit drhedberg.com. That's D-R-H-E-D-B-E-R-G.com. The information in this show is intended for educational purposes only. Always consult your healthcare professional before attempting anything recommended in this program. And now, here's Dr. Hedberg. Okay, well, welcome everyone. This is Dr. Hedberg, and welcome to the Dr. Hedberg Show. I'm excited today to be talking to Gary Stapleton, and Gary is the founder of Aerodiagnostics Laboratory, and this is the laboratory that I use for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth testing. Uh, their lab offers non-invasive hydrogen and methane breath testing. It's the lab I've been using uh, to test for SIBO because the quality is uh, really unparalleled in the SIBO testing world, and I've been very, very pleased with with the quality of the results I've been getting and the customer service. So we're going to be talking about some really interesting uh, items today about SIBO and SIBO testing. So Gary, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you, Dr. Hedberg. I really appreciate joining today, and I look forward to discussing SIBO and, and breath testing, hydrogen methane breath testing with the audience. Excellent. Yeah, it's good to have an expert like you here, because this is really a, a hot topic. I mean, the the prevalence of SIBO is continuing to grow, and uh, we're seeing it more and more. And then, of course, our IBS population uh, really struggles with SIBO uh, for the most part. So why don't you start by just talking to us about hydrogen and methane breath testing and how it works in the diagnosis of SIBO. Yeah, so thank you. And please feel free to uh, interject if, you know, if there's something that I've said or, or, or in the process of saying that uh, might be beneficial as well. So hydrogen and methane gas, for uh, those listening that aren't aware, are not produced by the body. Um, hydrogen and methane gas is produced by bacteria that is fermenting. So the way that the test works and why it's so incredibly important to prepare correctly, to use the right devices correctly, and to administer and ensure that your devices are operating correctly, to, to ensure that we're measuring hydrogen and methane gas appropriately, it all begins with the preparation. And then if you prepare correctly, which means you're removing food from uh, the GI tract, there, even if there's bacteria, there's no gas being produced because the bacteria, if it's there, needs to be fed to ferment and to produce this gas. So if you have bacteria in your small intestine and you're not supposed to have bacteria in your small intestine, I believe... Um, it should be less than 10 to the three colony forming units in the small intestine. If there's bacteria there, and if you prepped, which means you've removed all food, your baseline breath sample should be relatively low to, to no gas, because again, the bacteria is there, it's not being fed. Now, after that baseline sample, you ingest either glucose or lactulose as a substrate that has been validated um, to ensure uh, appropriate measurement of gas levels in relation to 
small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, when you ingest either that glucose or lactulose, that is a food source. And that food source will now feed bacteria if it is there. That bacteria will ferment or rot. And the gas that's produced, either hydrogen or methane, will diffuse through the blood and exit via the lung air. Um, I'll deflect for just a moment and say everyone is aware that there's a third gas. It's called hydrogen sulfide gas. And in our experience, and I know that some of the SIBO thought leaders and some of uh, the very, uh, very good clinicians that are treating SIBO today um, will, will may, may suggest that there's a higher prevalence of hydrogen sulfide. There's not a lot of data on that, and we'll talk about that. But I will tell you, we've run, you know, nearly 20,000 breath tests, and by the definition of utilizing a lactulose breath test and having a flat line, we're only seeing hydrogen sulfide uh, suspicion, you know, one to two percent. So it doesn't really uh, mm. occur that often from our perspective. So back to how does the test work? So if you've now prepped correctly and then you've uh, taken a breath sample and then you ingest either lactose or glucose, now that, that lactose and glucose uh, is traveling through the small intestine and when it meets up with bacteria, it will ferment and the gas diffuses through the blood, exits via the lung air, we capture that and then it's tested in the lab. If it happens between zero minutes, and again, this is another uh, point that we'll probably uh, get into later, the way that the test, uh, the gold standard interpretation has been, if you have a rise of gases between zero minutes and 120 minutes, that would be a positive indication that there is bacterial overgrowth. Um, there, there are some newer data and there's some newer perspectives that look only at 90 minutes. And from a laboratory perspective, it's accurate data. We want to provide you, the clinician, with accurate data. If like to interpret these looking at only zero minutes to 90 you can do that if you look at zero to 120 and challenge the more distals uh which is what we recommend you know considering then we can do that and again i think we'll talk about that a little later um if your choice is lactulose then that lactulose will pass into the large intestine and because there is bacteria and should be um typically you have elevated levels of hydrogen and or methane gas when it gets into the colon. With glucose, it is absorbed and you still get some gas levels, and uh, but not necessarily elevated in the, in the last three test tubes, okay? So this is how the hydrogen and methane breath test actually works. What I like about this test, with the total accuracy um, by the studies that were involved with it, you know, over 90%. What I like about it is that it's binary. If you have hydrogen and or methane gas, you know, within that first 120 minutes or 90 minutes, that is evidence that there's bacteria producing gas. It's the only way, if the patient prepared correctly, it's the only way you can get that gas. As I mentioned earlier, there's, uh, the body doesn't produce the gases, so that's the way that we do that. So I'll pause there, Dr. Hedberg, and see if that mm -hmm. answers the question. Yes, yes, that's a great overview. and. One of the ways I explain it to patients is uh, just like you're putting gasoline into a car and uh, the engine burns the gasoline and then the gas comes out, whereas the, and the bacteria are basically the engine um, burning that 
that fuel that you put in and, and it could be either glucose or lactulose, like you said. So can you talk just a little bit about your specific methodology? Uh, Cause not all labs are equal in this. And I, and I learned that early on. So how do you ensure the data you're seeing is, is accurate? Well, thank you for that question. I, I will tell you, this is why I founded the laboratory uh, laboratory um, a few years back. I think it's three and a half years ago. Uh, my wife, who is a physician, um, has owned and operated her own diagnostic laboratory in, in the pathology world. I've been, uh, you know, either owned or operated uh, or have run large diagnostic laboratories during my career. My wife at, um, was suffering from SIBO and of course, like many of your patients, uh, was asked to take a breath test. So we live in Boston, and the first test was asked to go to a very well-known hospital in Boston. Refrain from saying the exact one, but I, I assure you it was a very good one. And the first process was that she had to call to organize when they would have to go there and have your breath collected. Um, so there was a lot of back and forth. It was very inconvenient. And... Finally, it was settled that it was going to be on a Wednesday in Boston at like one o'clock in the afternoon. Well, as everyone knows, you have to prep for this, which includes 24 hours limited diet and then 12 hours, 12 hours of limited diet, 12 hours of the fast. Clearly, you don't want to be fasting all morning. Typically, you fast overnight. So it's inconvenient for the patient there. Then when we got there, it was the go down into the basement. And now you're in the basement for three hours with you know upwards of 20 other people having breath collected. No internet, no phone for people. This is very inconvenient these days for obvious reasons. And then when the test was, uh, the, the collections were actually done, you uh, would have, first of all, the prep information was was not consistent with, with how the test was actually validated. So that led to some inaccuracies. But then the, the clinician or the, the technicians that were collecting the breath, you could tell that they were trained by someone else, not by the equipment manufacturers or anyone directly, almost like whispered down the lane. So things have changed, and you, they didn't really know how to work with the devices and different things. So we were suspect from the very beginning. Needless to say, it was an inconvenient process, and it wasn't that good. So the next one was uh, we received a kit at home, right? Because uh, we weren't going to have it again. And um, it was obvious that the kit was like a homemade kit. Um, the most important thing, and this goes to the question: How do you ensure accurate results? The most important thing is that you have very direct and uh, personal involvement with that patient to help them with prep questions. The prep is very specific. Now, any clinician can change this, but the test has been validated on the preparation, meaning that the first 12 hours you eat from a limited list of foods. They are very straight, very direct. Chicken, fish, eggs, white rice, white bread, white potatoes. Now, there will be labs that argue that. There will be clinicians that will you know, vary from that. Uh, I don't know what to say other than if you read the data, the data says chicken, fish, eggs, white rice, white bread, white potatoes. And that's what we coach to. So when we send a kid directly to a patient, we don't ever drop it at your, at a clinician's site. All that does is put work on the staff and you risk variability again because you're the lab 
you start working with an office, you train the office, they usually have an in-service, so you do something, you train them on the prep and on the collection and everything. You're putting all the work now on that office and then office personnel changes. So when they change, what do they do? They, they train the next person. So again, whisper down the lane. So all of a sudden, chicken, fish, eggs, white rice, white bread turned into meat. So now we're having red meat, right? Or sausage or whatever. Mm -hmm. And rice turned into brown rice and, and you know, pork fried rice and all sorts of things when it's white rice. So this is incredibly important is the prep. So when we get an order from a clinician, they simply have a, a pre-populated with all the information we already know about that office. And, and then they just give us what we don't know, which is the patient information. And we take that order and we immediately get a kit uh, FedEx out to that patient. The patient gets, when we know that the patient received it, then we outbound call that patient to offer to answer any questions, whether it be on collection or whether it be on preparation or whether it be on return shipping or billing or whatever it might be. Um, that helps to reduce the variability. So now we've got it prepped. Now we know they, they know how to use it. They know that they can contact us 24 hours a day for assistance, whether it be on any of those items. And now they are using a kit. That kit has to have data on it that confirms that it collects and transports true lung air. Because if it doesn't, then you're taking a guess at whether or not you are actually measuring what you need to measure, which is alveolar air. It can't be the dead air space in the mouth. It can't be room air. So what we do is we personally chose Quintron branded uh, kits and devices. And that was after an exhaustive review of everything that's built. I'm an independent lab. I can buy any, any kits, any, any machines. I can get my own GC. I can make my own kits if I wanted to. Mm -hmm. so I didn't want to. I wanted to buy the best that was available and that had data on it so that I knew I was giving that accurate answer. So what we did was we buy these kits and buy it. They're like vacutainers, like when you draw blood, except we're not going to puncture the patient. If you can envision this, it is a device where the patient will begin to exhale. There's a needle and there's a evacuated sealed test tube, not opened up to room air. You puncture, you, you're exhaling, that alveolar air is going through the needle into the test tube and then it's removed that test tube, when it arrives at the laboratory and it has data on it that it transports correctly and holds that content. But when it gets to the laboratory, it is again punctured, never opened, and it's vacuumed out the sample. And that sample is then interrogated, okay? And that's how we know it. But, but wait, we know now that we collected right, we used the right thing, we prepped right, but how do we know? How do we know the machine's reading it right? Well, we calibrate our machines. Every five tests, it's calibrated, which means in four different ways. We have a known hydrogen tank, known methane tank, known carbon dioxide tank. And we put a sample of each of those through each machine, every five patient tests, and the machine has to get it right. If it doesn't, it's recalibrated. We also do a negative QC by taking a sample of room air, and it has to get that right. So now we know we have accurate data and now it becomes interpretation. So the question was about accurate data. And you know, if you you know look at all the laboratories that are available or the hospitals, yes, you can you can get coverage at a hospital and maybe the patient doesn't have any an out-of-pocket, or you can 
get um, a, a lab that's willing to do it for less. Um, yes, you can do it for less. If you're not buying these good pieces of equipment or these good kits, yes. Uh, if, if I were to make my own kits, buy my own components, I could probably do this for less. But you, that's not going to help if the data isn't accurate. Uh, the last thing I'll say about accuracy is what's the CO2? Gary, you didn't mention that. Well, carbon dioxide is, um, is at uh, standard levels in alveolar air, constant levels. And it's in uh, trace amounts in non-lung air. So we're looking for the right number of CO2, the right level of CO2 in each sample to validate that the right kits, the right shipping, everything happened right, the right prep, everything happened right, and what we're actually measuring is lung air. Because if I'm measuring room air, dead air space, and giving you a low number, then I'm giving you a false negative. So when the CO2 is correct, that means we're, and the machines are calibrated, so we know that those individual data points are right. Now, the clinician can interpret that data based on any interpretive method, whether it be the Rome consensus or the North American consensus, or you know some of the peak values, and we'll talk about that. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So let's—I don't know if "controversial" is the right word, but let's just talk a little bit about the differences between glucose and lactulose. This is something that uh, a lot of it seems to be practitioner preference, but and, and of course, some of it has to do with just how to interpret those two, but. Um, there's a lot of research out there, and I think at least the main differences that I've seen is the the number of false positives with lactulose compared to glucose as is really one of the main potential issues with the with the differences. Uh, but when it comes to lactulose, it's my understanding it's uh, a lot of it is about the interpretation. So can you talk a little bit about the differences between those two? Sure, and thanks for that. I will tell you that when I first opened the lab, I was told, you know, SIBO has, you know, two uh, substrates that you can choose from glucose or lactose. Okay, well, we'll get both, I guess. Didn't know a lot about it. And then I started looking into it. And, you know, lactulose is a prescription in the United States. So if you're a patient and you want to get a test without going through your clinician, which we don't suggest, but if you do, you can't get that. Uh, you, you get the glucose, or if you don't have a prescription. So that's that's one. But when I thought about that, I thought, well, there are many clinicians. Um, there are you know dietitians in, in various states, uh, naturopathic physicians, different folks that can't order lactulose, which it still doesn't make any sense to me. But that's another story. Mm -hmm. um, but regardless of that, you have that issue. Um, so I thought, well, there's a lot of talk about. You know, if you're not doing lactulose, you're using the wrong one. And, and, and I thought, well, then why are both available? So I did a very deep dive into all of the studies with regard to glucose and lactulose. Now, let me just put a disclaimer here. I am sure that someone could find one that will be uh, disparate from what I'm going to say here. But I will tell you, at the time, which was only a short two years ago, when I did the exhaustive search of looking at glucose versus lactulose, a surprising answer came out. Glucose, by far, in every study that I saw, had a higher sensitivity and specificity. Period. Mm -hmm. End of story. Now, I think that is somewhat misleading if you don't tell the whole story. 
So here's the whole story. Um, to your point, lactulose is extraordinarily good for um, use with the SIBO, hydrogen, nothing but us, as is glucose. The reason, to your point, uh, that its sensitivities are, are lower than glucose is because of the false positives. So let's let's drill down in this. This is really pretty simple, actually. Lactulose is laxative. In some patients, it can increase gut motility. If we're looking between zero and 120 minutes, or zero and whatever minutes you want to look at, there is an opportunity for that lactulose in that given patient to go through the small intestine faster. If it does, then any distal points on that, you might get a rise of gases and think you're in the small intestine, but you're in the colon because there is bacteria in the colon, you will have gas there. So that's why it has false positives associated with it. I'm not going to say this is why the North American consensus is looking at honeymoons. I, I, I don't represent that consensus at all. I am just saying there is a drive toward not looking to 120 minutes for that very reason. Uh, they want to limit the false positives. From my perspective, I think the data is the data. We give the clinician the data and allow the clinician to look at that data in conjunction with the clinical impressions that they have of that patient. Only the clinician can make the diagnosis. The breath test is not a diagnosis because even though it's binary, if you have gas and bacteria, you have to take that into consideration with the substrate, with the timing, and with what you're seeing from the patient. Does the patient have you know, bloating, cramping, nausea, joint pain, restless leg syndrome, skin manifestations like rosacea and or you know, psoriasis or, or things that would lead that clinician to believe we're dealing with SIBO. And by the way, they're chronic, right? Regardless of what we eat. So when you have that and you have a substrate being used, then that's where you get the best diagnosis and you can use the full data set. So glucose or lactulose, what you'll hear if you, or see if you, if you scan the internet or hear from the podium is glucose is good for more proximal infections, lactulose is good for more distal infections because lactulose is not broken down in the small intestine and it'll pass through into the colon. Um, glucose is, will, will be absorbed in the small intestine, so you'll miss a distal infection. Well, the studies all dispel, dispelled that. The studies were very clear that it had a high sensitivity and specificity in all of the studies. And I see from running all of the glucose tests, and we run a lot of them, that we're seeing the, we're seeing, uh, the data uh, throughout the small intestine. So the, even though it's a good um, I don't want to say theory, but it's a good perspective that many of the very well-known and respected SIBO thought leaders say, and I, and I and I I'm not trying to disagree, excuse me, disagree with their perspective. I actually it seems pretty reasonable to me that if it's absorbed in the small intestine, well, maybe you won't get all the way through. Maybe you'll miss a distal infection, right? But but the fact is that the studies don't back that up, and the fact is that uh, we're seeing we're seeing the gas. Uh, in, in these tests. And I've had clinicians that will order both. I do not suggest that. I see some clinicians doing that. I think um, from a convenience, inconvenience perspective to the patient and from a cost perspective, I, I don't suggest that. I will tell you every single time, every single time that we've run uh, a SIBO and lactose on the same patient back-to-back -back days, the same answer comes out. They're either both positive or they're both negative. So, mm -hmm. 
these are good substrates. So here's one thing that I will say. So, and I'll be asked this a lot, Gary, why would you recommend lactulose then if the, if the, if the um, uh, sensitivity and specificity of glucose is better? Good question, right? And I do recommend lactulose when we can get it. Let me tell you why. There's one benefit, one single benefit in my opinion, and that is for your negative tests. You have a negative glucose. It's negative, right? Negative is negative. Mm-hmm. We did all we did all the accurate stuff. Used everything. Calibrated the machines. Negative, negative. You have a negative lactulose test, but you don't have elevated gas levels in those last three test tubes. Then we have to put the brakes on, and we do, and we call the clinician. And I think I've even called you, Doctor Edwards. You know, maybe I have, but. I call many clinicians, right, that use lactose. And what I'll say is I expected to see elevated levels, and I didn't. So we have to talk about a few things. We have roughly nine questions that we have to review to help me understand why I don't have a rise. And here are some of them. They didn't drink the lactose. The lactose is a syrup. They didn't mix it with water. They had some sort of flushing effect of the bowel, like use of antibiotics, use of heavy laxatives. they were on an elemental diet that sometimes can have effect where you don't have a rise in the third hour of the test. Um, and then the last ones are hydrogen sulfide. So that's the reason for lactulose, um, if anything. But I will tell you, you can do the same thing with glucose. Why? If you have a negative and you have SIBO symptoms, then we should question with those nine questions. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, one of the most important things there is uh, patient presentation, how they're feeling, how uh, how their symptoms are changing, and I mean it's not just with SIBO testing, but any test that I run, uh, you know, you always have to look at the patient and what they're feeling and and make the best decision in that regard. So, so there are a lot of different ways to uh, to interpret these tests. I mean, you said earlier it's it's very binary. If the gas is there, it's there. Do you have any anything you'd like to say about the different approaches to interpret these tests and, and which way you prefer? Sure. I will tell you that I have a I have a personal preference. If if I were doing a test for myself or my family, I have my personal you know preference on how I would look at the data. I'm going to tell you that my specific laboratory uses the gold standard of If you are using glucose and you have a three-hour breath test, which is gold standard, and you have 10 test tubes being collected every 20 minutes, you're looking for a rise of hydrogen gas of 12, a rise of methane gas of 12, or a rise of the combined of 12, right? That's that's glucose. Hmm. Lactulose would be a rise of hydrogen of 20, a rise of methane of 12, and a rise of... um, the combined of 15. We also, based on the very good work um, that Dr. Pimentel and his group have done on methane, when there's constipation present, you use, um, you know, it has been recommended by, you know, that group and many treating clinicians that the lower threshold of three parts per million of methane gas with constipation would be an indication based on the work that was done there. Now, um, there is, and everyone's aware of it, there's a new North American consensus, and I don't represent, you know, that consensus, um, you know, but, uh, you know, you'll see that there's 
there are differences there are differences in collection times there are looking at uh, 0 to 90 minutes there's a threshold for methane 1 from 12 to 10 uh, and some other things you can you can read about that uh, and I've had a lot of questions why are you not changing over the interpretation that you put on your reports to the North American Census I would love to I would love to if it were a study um, it by definition its consensus was a survey so there were 17 very good very well-intentioned and, and very um, well thought of clinical and, and research sites that were used as part of that survey so essentially a survey was sent out say how do you interpret these tests they got all the answers back they came together did some really good hard work and they came up with their perspective on that and you know through our advisory groups and, and different folks we looked at it it was just too difficult to apply that within our laboratory because we couldn't point to it as a study with controls whereas uh, the other um, you know the, the interpretive method that we use now has been uh, you know it was arrived the consensus was arrived through uh, you know, studies with controls, and, and, and it wasn't uh, an opinion of how clinicians treat. Plus, you know, we serve 27 countries, and you know, it was a North American consensus, and not not everyone you know treats similarly throughout the globe. So we felt the most pragmatic approach would be to remain where we're, we are until such a time that um, appropriate studies with controls have been able to validate presence or absence of of uh, bacteria. Now, all that being said, all that being said, I think our job as a laboratory is not to tell you necessarily the answer. It is to make a recommendation based on peer-reviewed published work, but most importantly, give you that accurate data, including carbon dioxide levels. Give you all the accurate data. Be there as a resource for you. Answer any questions that you have. If you want to apply the North American consensus, you should. If you want to apply what some SIBO thought leaders do, and I agree with this, I just, there's no data on it for me to, to oper operate that way, but let's say you want to do a peak level, like um, some SIBO thought leaders will look at hydrogen, and if you're using lactulose, we talked about having a rise, a rise of hydrogen gas in the small intestine of 20 parts per million or more. What happens if you don't get the rise? What happens if your rise is five, six, or seven parts per million? but you have 20 parts per million or 30 parts per million of, of hydrogen and or methane gas at 90 minutes. You know, there may be reasons why you don't have a rise. It could be poor prep. It could be slow migrating motor complex. There are reasons why you might not have a rise. So some of the SIBO leaders say, go back to that whole binary nature of this. If you have gas, it can only be from bacteria fermenting. So if we have a level of gas that's at that level, I'm less concerned with looking for a rise. And they can do that. You, the listener here, can do the same thing. So going back to what I said when we first started the question, if it were me or my child and I saw 20 parts per million of hydrogen, I, I care less about the rise in my perspective. If that correlates with the clinical impression and the clinician who's treating that child of mine agreed, then I would be in agreement with treating. Mm -hmm. Excellent. That's a great overview of uh, 
glucose, lactulose, and the interpretation. Now, you had mentioned hydrogen sulfide gas earlier. Did you have something else you wanted to say about that? Yes, I, I will say we're in an exciting time, uh, an extraordinarily exciting time right now. Um, there will be papers that will be presented here coming up at DDW, Digestive Disease Week, and at ACG, American uh, College of Gastroenterology, fall. And we're going to learn a lot more. There are researchers doing a lot of good work on hydrogen sulfide. I might disagree that the prevalence of it is where they are recommending, and we'll wait till we see the papers. But I, it's just from the, you know, the the information and doing the twenty thousand plus tests that we've done. Um, we just don't see it. We, just, you know, we just don't see it that often. And when you have lactulose, you would know because if you have a positive uh, SIBO test. And you know you don't have, uh, I mean, a rise. I mean, you know, you know you're dealing with hydrogen sulfide. Excuse me, if it's a negative test. Um, but but I'm looking forward to the data. If the data will deliver us differently, I'm I'm excited for it. So I'm excited to be able to do hydrogen sulfide gas testing. So there are devices um, that are available right now. I don't personally use them because I'm not comfortable with uh, the data behind it. There are devices that are imminently going to be launched. Again, I would probably be less uh, to, yeah, I would really want to look at the data and, and what was validated and who validated it before I would actually purchase one of those machines, but I would um, if it were good. Here's the trouble, and, and someone could figure out something different, so there may be people that know things that I don't know here as I'm answering this question, but hydrogen sulfide is measured in parts per billion, not parts per million of hydrogen methane. It requires, with the current sensors that are available in the marketplace today, it requires, and I'm not a device manufacturer about this, I don't know, there are things I may not know, but they're my, from my, what has been told to me by many of the manufacturers of these products, that measured in parts per billion, it requires a large volume of gas, so it's less likely to be available uh, via at-home breath collection. So if they can solve for all these things, I think it helps because we need to know if there are these three gases, we should be able to uh, you know, measure all three accurately and deliver a result on all three. Mm-hmm. So let's get uh, into some more uh, rapid fire type questions, uh, but please feel free to elaborate as, as much as you want to on these. So, one question is, when should a patient retest following a treatment plan? Yep. Current guidance is the kits will say two weeks because that's the studies that were done that support that. Many clinicians will test uh, anywhere from you know, 10 days to 14 days. Um, the reason for the, and some are more aggressive, even start at five days, but the reason there was the two-week recommendation is you want the effect of your treatment to be completed, the effect of that to, to determine whether or not you have presence or absence of bacteria. Now, the reason for not waiting two weeks and why many clinicians go around 10 days is that they, if they didn't get all the bacteria, which is common, then they don't want to risk regrowth. And with an elemental diet, you want to test the very next day, okay? And the way, what we suggest at our laboratory is we will turn it around for you. It goes to the front of the line. So when you start that elemental diet, you start it so that it finishes on a Monday 
or a Tuesday. Why? Because they're going to FedEx that back to us, and I don't want to FedEx back where it sits all weekend. Because you're going to have the patient do the fed, um, do the elemental diet all the way up to let's call it a Sunday, right? And then it's overnight, and then they're going to collect their breath, and then they're going to remain on that elemental diet until we get the answer. So if they expedite that kit back to us, and they can even choose to overnight it if they like. If they let us know in advance, or if the clinician lets us know it's inbound, then we do that as a first run. So we look for that as it comes in, and that's the first test that's reported out. So that you can get to your patient and say, yes, we need to continue, or we need to go to a different therapy, or we've got it, you're clear, you can go back or start this diet now. Right, right, okay. And there's a term called a time gap treatment and recurrence. Can you talk about what that means and why it's so important? Yes, absolutely. And I will tell you this, this is one of the most important things, if anything, that we could talk about here today. You hear often about SIBO and recurrence, and I'm not trying to propose that there's not recurrence. There's recurrence. Um, but it, I don't believe it's as um, at the level that, that many in, that are treating SIBO think that it is. I think what we see a lot is patients that present to maybe even you know a primary, and the primary says, well, I want you to go see so-and-so, and they, they come up to them, and then they're either tested or not tested, and then they're given some antibiotics, and then the patient um, starts to feel a little bit better because the antibiotics knock down some of the bacteria count, they feel good, they go on their way. SIBO patients have been sick for so long that you know their best gut day is our worst gut day. So they're starting to feel better from some of the antibiotics or some of the, the treatment, and they're not tested or retested, so they just go on their way. And three months later, the bacteria was never truly eradicated, so it just repopulated, and we're back into this every three-month situation. So the first thing I do when I get a second test on a patient, and we look at that, and it's second test, and there's a long period of time, and it's positive again, I, we always pick up the phone and call the clinician and we talk to the clinician about that and we say, what happened between this date, here comes the time gap, this date and this date. So let's say the first test was done in June of 2017. Now we have a March and it's positive and, and the clinician, the first thing they'll say is, oh, the three currents, that's common. Well, maybe. Did you test back in June and get a positive? Yes, we did. Did you treat? Yes, we treated until August. Great. Did you test again? No, they said they were feeling better. Well. That could have been that you knocked down the bacteria count. Now the, some, some bacteria was left over, residual bacteria was left over, and over a period of time, it, it grew, it re-flourished, and now we're back. So test, well, suspect first, chronic symptoms, test, treat, and then many of the followers would say test again. Me, you know, convenience and cost-wise for patients, if they're still symptomatic, maybe you can continue. Uh, to treat until they start to claim that they're asymptomatic. That's when you want to test to be sure that you got it all. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So a lot of patients will ask, do I need to stop taking this or that supplement? And so can you talk a little bit about prep for the test? So that would be diet and any stipulations on supplements they need to avoid? Sure. So this is the way to think about it. Uh, the, the preparation for the hydromethane breath test, as we discussed earlier, was 24-hour prep, 12 hours limited diet, 12 hours of a fast. So the 12-hour limited diet, very straightforward, chicken, fish, eggs, white rice, white bread, white potatoes, no varying from that. If you have 
vegans or otherwise, we, we tend to work with them, but we note everything and then we look at the results and, and then together with the clinician, we decide if we have meaningful data. And we do, and we do. There's ways to work through that. But to your point about supplements and different things, these, there, there's been never a flow on this. So when I first started doing this work, there were no PPIs, no probiotics, no this. And then the, the PPIs got removed and the probiotics got removed. And, and now we're back to, um, there was just a recent uh, you know, article on a specific probiotic that seems to raise methane levels. So I think the most important thing to know is if you can remove for 24 hours um, the, or follow the limited diet and then the fast, and the fast is water by mouth only, you know, throughout the test, um, leading up to that, any products that are not essential to the care of that patient, if, you know, whether they be laxatives or probiotics, if you can avoid those in the care of this patient, that would be best so that we get a good read for you. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And what about diarrhea when we're talking about collecting samples? What do we need to be worried about with that, if anything? So we are working with the manufacturers right now to try to um, change the language that the, the patients see. And that right now it says if you have diarrhea, wait till you don't have diarrhea. Well, we all know that many of these patients that we're dealing with placebo and testing have diarrhea. And really, it's the wording that was chosen. So I think what you'll see is it's more about very um, strong, watery diarrhea. So if you're having that flushing effect, that's why they had the diarrhea component in there, was if you have a, a, a violent but a strong diarrhea event and it's water and it's just shooting through the system, the potential for it to wash out or flush out bacteria is possible and we could get false negatives. So um, that's why that was in there. I think it'll be more of, if you have soft stool or like diarrhea, it's okay. You have very strong barrier. Try to try to negotiate the collection of the breath when, when it's not so strong. Okay. Now you've, you've been very generous uh, with, with my calls and of course with other clinicians doing consultations. If we have questions about a particular test that, kind of leaves us scratching our heads when we look at a lab and, and it doesn't seem to fit with the patient. So can you talk about why these, you know, laboratory and clinician consultations are so important? Yes, thank you. And I will tell you, this by far has been the most critical aspect, in my opinion, of the entire testing process and treatment process of that patient. Um, you're not the clinicians are not expected to be experts in testing and uh, interpretations and, and different things. You know, we've done, as I've mentioned several times, you know, more than 20,000 of these tests. We know this data very well. Our role in this is to support the clinician in that everything that they see in that test should match with what you are seeing as a clinician a clinical impression of that patient. And I can count on one hand the number of times that we were not able to match directly. And I think those times were because the one area we can't tell you is the area that we're blind to, and that's the preparation and collection. We can guide, we can train, we can talk, but we're not there. So that can have an impact. As an example, if they don't drink the lactulose, 
and, or the glucose, and we get a negative, and you're saying, I see SIBO symptoms, but it's negative, there's no way for us to account for that. So that's where you have it, but on one hand, so oftentimes, whether it be time gap treatment issues, whether it be distal positives, whether it be you know, a false positive because of a prep issue, the value that we have in coming together and sharing and supporting each other. I, you know, we, our, our clinical team, we've worked with um, all of you every single day. So there are shared experiences that we're able to relay. You know, Dr. Hedberg's doing this and, you know, Dr. Smith's doing that. And oftentimes we'll connect clinicians to talk about um, a situation because they have a patient with MS or AIDS or, or whatever it might be. And, and the value of us actually getting on the phone and talking with each other about the specific patient, not generalities. And that to me is the most rewarding part of what we do. And I'll end with, you know, our, you know, our tagline is advancing healthcare into human care. I take that very seriously. We want patients to get better. I want to see the success through the clinicians and whatever little part we provide, which is just accuracy and convenience, then that's the part that, you know, we serve in this world. Mm -hmm. Great. So it, for any of the uh, clinicians out there, uh, if you're using SIBO testing and not using aero diagnostics, I do highly recommend you use them. The quality is really unparalleled and, and the customer service is really, really unmatched in the, not just the SIBO testing world, but the functional medicine testing world as well. And if you're a patient um, and you need a SIBO test, you can always request that your, your practitioner, your doctor uses aerodiagnostics for the lab test. So this uh, was a really great overview. We covered a lot and I really appreciate your time and you coming on, Gary. In closing, why don't you just tell everyone how to connect with aerodiagnostics, your website, any other online information you'd like to to give out? Sure. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for uh, hosting me today. Um, Aero Diagnostics can be contacted directly at uh, 617, um, actually 608-3832 or toll free at 844-681-9449. We also can be reached at aerodiagnostics.com. That's with an S. So it's A-E-R-O-D-I-A-G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S.com. Um, I am available if any clinician and or patient would just like to talk about a situation or a difficult case. The last thing I'd like, just like to say, Dr. Hedberg, and, and, I, and I, it comes from the heart, I reviewed that uh, SIBO um, program you had on the Hedberg Institute, and I and I, I think I told you this directly, I thought that was one of the, the most thorough um, SIBO um, classes that I've ever, ever, uh, you know, participated mm. in. So thank you for doing that good work. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate the feedback. So that, uh, well, that concludes us, everyone. I'm going to be posting all the show notes that we talked about on drhedberg.com, and I'll have links to everything we talked about as well as aerodiagnostics labs. So look out for that. All right. We'll take care everyone. This is Dr. Hedberg. Thanks for listening.
If you enjoy The Dr. Hedberg Show, you can support it by sharing each episode on your social media channels, like Facebook, and by leaving a review on iTunes. Please visit drhedberg.com. That's D-R-H-E-D-B-E-R-G.com to access the show notes and resources for today's episode.